He's he has all his the pins pulled from his grenade, and so just the spoon is remaining. And there's hornets stinging his hand, so he's having to cling to this grenade as hornets are stinging him. And that's when another grenade comes over, spinning over the side of the wall, lands uh, next to to the four of us. And there was nothing we could do. It was just so far enough that none of us could do anything to it except brace. And in the end, it was a dud. And once it didn't explode, suppress a fire over onto that uh, uh, position. And Eric throws, throws a grenade over, eliminates that. And we began clearing down the alley. I'm pushing in the game, fire superiority, and Sergeant Hans Bros has uh, an M320 grenade launcher. And he's pulling the rounds off of his off of his uh, rack and, and shoot them in there. And only like every three are actually exploding because they need a certain amount of time mm-hmm. to activate. And they were so close that we weren't getting a lot of them to explode, which which told us how close the proximity of the fight was. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single, one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. We chose The Spear as the name of the podcast to capture two ideas. First, that combat is that unique experience that takes place at the tip of the spear. And second, that in our modern wars, it isn't just combat forces that can find themselves fighting. Any part of the military, any part of the spear, combat or support, can be forced by circumstances to become that sharp fighting end. In this episode, I speak to Captain Nick Dockery, recipient of the 2017 Alexander Nininger Award for Valor at Arms. The Nininger Award is given by the West Point Association of Graduates to a West Point graduate for heroic action in battle. Captain Dockery received the award in recognition for his actions as a platoon leader during a 2012 engagement in Kapisa Province, Afghanistan. He talks us through that day, his mission, the attack that targeted his platoon, and the fighting that followed. A couple notes before we get into the conversation. First, if you're listening to The Spear and have enjoyed the episode so far, we would really love it if you would give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to other listeners interested in the stories and interviews we feature. Second, I want to thank the West Point Association of Graduates. Not only did they help us arrange the conversation for this episode, but they've been a great resource for us at the Modern War Institute, as they are for alumni and really the entire West Point community. And lastly, as always, What you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Captain Nick Dockery. Captain Nick Dockery, uh, thanks for sitting down and talking to us today. Uh, It's a a pleasure to have you here. You're here here at West Point to accept an award uh, from the West Point Association of Graduates, the the Nininger Award, um, which... As I understand it, is given to an officer who graduated and commissioned from West Point uh, for a particular act of valor. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the the lineage of that award or what you what you know about it? Yeah, uh, the award was named after Alexander Sandy Nininger, a USMA, a USMA graduate of 1941. Um, it was 
It comes from the AOG. It's, it parallels the Thayer Award, um, meaning to more appeal to more of the core cadets. Uh, this is the 12th year. I believe I'm the first cadet or the first graduate to have been here and uh, been in the seats to hear the story all four years that I was that, that I was a cadet here. Uh, and at no point did I ever think to myself when I'm getting, uh, that I'm hearing any of these, that, that it would ever possibly be me. Oh. And last night I met Nick uh, Esslinger, uh, who works over in the BSNL, um, who was a recipient when I was a, a sophomore here, and his story resonated with me. Uh, so I think what makes my particular case interesting is that I'm the first one to come back and, and have grown up in the system seeing this award. So you remember sitting there yes. all four years. Did it have an impact on you as a, as a cadet? It's really difficult to frame out because it's set and even having gone through incidents like this you have to stand to take a step back and when when i got got this was fortunate enough to to receive a silver star those aren't common mm -hmm. events that happen so it's difficult to base your whole model of leadership off an isolated incident but just hearing those stories and having somebody come back and that can relate and frame it out hey i was i was in your shoes I pinged corners, I uh, had to know the days, I went through this experience with you, and then before I know it, in Nick's case, he was in Samara, Iraq, on a patrol, a grenade uh, lands in the middle of his platoon or his patrol, it picks it up and throws it back without thinking. And oh. a similar situation, similar uh, circumstance for me, you graduate, you're not in country for very long, You, in my case, I met a very well-seasoned platoon in theater that then they knew the area, they had their SOPs down, they knew how to fight, I'm a new lieutenant, and we're thrust in these situations. And it's difficult to get a framework. So, so stories like Nick's are, are what you have to, to reflect on when you're a cadet coming into it. And, and you're like, this is a guy who was a regular guy and did incredible things. How did he do it? Well, it's what we're doing here. Seems like a pretty powerful um, sort of component uh, that, that ties, you know. I know it sometimes it sounds almost trite and almost like a cliche when you talk about the long gray line, but when you can, when you can have somebody who graduated six years ago uh, right. come back and, and speak to the cadets and they can kind of see themselves there, you know, one or two duty positions into their career, uh, that's, that's pretty powerful, I think. So it's, uh, it's a great program and it's quite an honor. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Uh, you're a 2011 West Point graduate. Yes. Right? And uh, by 2012, you were deployed to Afghanistan, correct? Correct. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that deployment, when you went, what you were doing, what unit you were with, where you were? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I finished up all the, the basic pipeline through Fort Benning. I branched as an infantry officer and went through the basic pipeline through there. When I got to fourth ID, of course, like everybody in my class at that time, everybody wanted to go to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't really, weren't really sure what we were going to be doing at the time because we're hearing different things uh, when we're going through through the basic course in Ranger School. And I showed up to Fort Carson and then left a, a few weeks, maybe a month later after after getting there. And we went to uh, Kunar Province. Uh, my brigade, I was with uh, Fort Carson, uh, 4th Infantry Brigade. Uh, 212 Infantry, and I was assigned to C Company, ended up taking 2nd Platoon. And we were responsible for Kunar Province, specifically 
my platoon uh, took Chowke District. That was mine. It was in the Dewagal Valley, which was ran along the Kaskunar River and uh, the Korngal Valley, closer to the Pakistan border. Okay. Uh, a lot of our concerns there was uh, MSR California was a big uh, terrain feature for us mm -hmm. where a lot of supply lines ran through the mountainous region, came down to MSR California. And to the north, we had uh, Bostick, and then if you followed all the way down to the southern end, I think that's where you ended up with Jalalabad. So okay. there was a big conduit, a lot of activity going through okay. that particular region. So you were a platoon leader. What uh, what was sort of the mission when you when you came in? You took over responsibility for for this district. Um, what was what was what was what did the mission look like? The mission at the time is we were at this point in the war, we had fully stood up a national army. And we had a lot of special operations there, particularly uh, special forces. And they were training, focusing solely on the local police in the area. And we're bringing in the security forces advisory and assistant teams to work with uh, the National Army. So you had all these different composites of training teams training different parts of the security forces in there. And as a conventional infantry platoon leader, there wasn't a whole lot left over. And by default, nobody had partnered with the National Police in the area. So we just absorbed them into our daily patrols and, and, and routines. Uh, so for us, the mission was to mainly secure the district of Chow Kay and work with the district sub-governor and try to build relationships with some of the local leaders. But the war had changed hands in that area so many times. What do you mean the war had changed hands? Uh, at that point, we had seen a lot of shifts. Uh, we're coming on the back end for a lot of... Uh, village stability operations had had a strong effect in the area at the point, but it was changing hands. And, and by changing hands, I mean it, the direction was going a little bit differently. There was a lot of talk. Um, I hope I'm phrasing the right way to say a lot of talk, but we were going to do a withdrawal and we we're going to begin retrograde operations. But we wanted to have planning, uh, planning and operations executed and planned by our Afghan counterparts. So we're at this pivotal part where we're like, we really need you guys to start to be in the driver's seat now. We've been driving this for 10 years. And Kunar had so much, like a lot of other regions there, had had a strong US influence for a very long time and we have been driving everything. So the idea was we really need to get our partners to own this area. Mm -hmm. And that's when I inserted in the area and I had taken over. And when I met with a lot of local leaders in there, they had the ability to reference 10 years of different units and platoons working in the area. So they always had a way to tell me on how they used to do it. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't like it, of course, I never heard about it. But if another unit did something they liked, of course, they wanted me to continue that. Sure. Uh, so you moved into uh, Kunar, but then I understand you later moved to a different province? Right. Uh, at that time, our brigade, uh, 4th Brigade, had control of N2KL and we were specifically Kunar. Our battalion had Kunar and we had uh, the Chowke area or Cop Fortress at that point. Uh, in another part of the country in Kapisa, which is east of Bagram, just south of Mahmoud, Iraqi, there was a large French presence for the better part of 10 years, I believe, maybe a little bit less than that. 
and they had controlled two primary areas, uh, Fort Operace Tagab, and to the north of that, Fort Operace Nijrab in that region. And so the political dynamics, dynamics I believe uh, Nicolas Sarkozy was the president at the time, there were things happening in France where they decided they were going to retrograde out of the country a little bit earlier than what anticipated. So our brigade commander uh, working with the RC East commander, which was Lieutenant General Mayville and um, then Colonel uh, Jim Mingus, now Major General uh, Mingus, made a composite task force of different elements. And we were basically the security arm of it. Uh, chosen Company 212 Infantry got sliced off and put under command of uh, Task Force War Eagle, commanded by um, Lieutenant Colonel, now Colonel, uh, Robert Rocky Burrell. So we packed up all our stuff from Kunar and we made the 250 kilometer uh, ground tactical movement from Kunar all the way out to Kapisa and we would pick up elements along the way. We'd stop by places like uh, Ziahawk, uh, where Eric actually had been my squadron staff sergeant, Eric Mitchell, a uh, guest of mine for the uh, Ninja War dinner. Uh, he had been there on a previous deployment. We picked up bits of other elements, EODs, RC, uh, explosive ordnance, uh, route clearance platoons, dog handlers, other intel analysts, and we just started building up hmm. this task force. And to more directly address what we were there to do was we were there to essentially create some freedom of maneuver for 2-7 CAV to come in and take over that security force advisory assessment teams in that area. And they just needed time, uh, time and space basically to allow them to get there, integrate, and for us to start building those relationships with our partner. Force. So how, how does this sort of organically developed task force, how were how you planning on creating that time and space? So we had first, uh, at the tactical level, for, for us, our warning order given to us was, you guys are going into a very kinetic area. Mm -hmm. We were used to, and we were very used to more long distance engagements. Uh, at that time, our closest engagement in Kunar had been at 400 meters. Mm -hmm. Uh, most of the time we were in the valley, it was coming from the high ground, we were in up-armored vehicles, and we weren't accustomed to a lot of ground fighting, where the troops were, or the enemy fighters were on the same plane as us. So to back, to take you back before we left, we focused a lot of our, our training and planning on that piece, and we did a lot of live fire exercises. Fortunately, we were able to have access to range times and munitions that that kind of sped the process along for us as we transitioned, as we prepared ourselves to get into that close uh, proximity fighting. So that's that's where the planning at the tactical level occurred. We were pretty far away removed operationally and, and strategically, and we actually linked up with our task force commander in uh, Jalalabad on our movement, and that's the first time that we met uh, par uh, parts of our staff for that task force, and we didn't meet everybody until we showed up in Tagab on towards the end of September of 2012. Okay. So you've been in country for two and a half, three months by the time you get there? Yes. Okay. I came in, in in early July and, and by uh, September we had moved from Kunar to Kapisa. Okay. So late September when you when you arrive, what's the security situation in Kapisa look like? Well this is kind of funny in its own 
I, what we were involved, General Mingus came down and told us when we were in Bagram, when we were out to take, take off and, and move up to the north through Mahmoud Iraqi and down. He's like, you guys are probably going to have to fight your way in and it's going to be, it's going to be a fight just to get in through the gate. So that's what we were prepared for. And yes, any guys said, guys were fighting to get in the turret seat before we left. Everybody <laughs> wanted to be, everybody wanted to be a gunner that day, and and that that's not what happened at all. But the funny part is to it is we were all involved in our first drive-by shooting. Uh, we actually <laughs> pulled into the gate, and there's about thirty um, Mat V Max Pro type fifteen to thirty ton up armor vehicles, and a handful of. Uh, men in a Toyota Corolla rode by with AKs out the window and just did a drive-by shooting wow. on us. And we say it's funny because it's not a tactic that we'd ever really seen before. And it was just to tell us, it was sending a message. It was yeah. obviously they knew that it was going to do anything, but it was telling us like, we know you're here and this is how close we can get to you. We will come right up to the gate and we will shoot at you and we'll oh. just drive by with us. This is what the are gate you going to do about it? This is the gate to God? Yeah, okay. the intercontrol point. Uh, that's the, and we had only two gates to get in. We had one uh, off to the northeast, and then we had one on the very back of the of the Ford operating base. So you take uh, take control, take responsibility for this particular area when October first, uh, two thousand and twelve. The day before, we had gone and we had met the local, the district um, sub governor. And we fell into, we ended up getting a few indirect rounds uh, dropped in on us. And that day we were intercourt on security. And we, this happened on, I believe, 30, 30 September, 29 September, a few days before October 2nd, which is where, where um, I received the Silver Star and four other members from my platoon were decorated for valor also. That particular day, we basically replicated that same plan. Only we were inner court on security. October second, we flipped and we we're outer court on security. And that day, we had received a number of indirect rounds on the inside. Again, I don't think the enemy was particularly trying to engage with us. They were trying to send a message that it doesn't. If you come into the district center, we're going to indirect you. If you try to come out your gate, we're going to shoot at you. Like just telling us how close they could get to mm -hmm. us. So this. This uh, we assume responsibility on the first of October, and the uh, the big incident happened on October second. Okay. So so walk me through if you can um, October second. October second, we weren't fully into a routine yet. We were still flopping around trying to get our hooches set up, and it came out as our. Uh, Intel analysts came down to give us a, a ramp or a brief. Uh, we called them ramp side briefs. Uh, then, where we would we did all our planning the night, uh, the few days before, and we would do our rehearsals. But this would be one once over before we went over SOPs, uh, basic procedures, most likely courses of action that would happen uh, out on the patrol, and we would get a last minute intel brief. And the intel analysts came down there uh, and told us that they believed there was going to be a vehicle-borne IED that was planning to hit one of our vehicles out there. And they knew it was going to be a Corolla, and they had like two digits off the license plate. Anybody who's been to Afghanistan knows license plates. Their Department of Motor Vehicles is not the focal point <laughs> at that time. 
Uh, so half of us, I took it seriously because I was uh, the I was a platoon leader at the time. The rest of the guys were just on. They're like, sir, everybody has a Toyota Corolla. This isn't very helpful. Um, so we left out. This is around nine o'clock in the morning. We had two platoons with us. Uh, one platoon was going to do the inner cordon security for the inside of the district, and then myself and about a platoon of Afghan National Army were going to secure the southern southern section of the uh, district sub-governor's compound. And this is right outside the gate. So if, so if it gives you a reference, we're about two, two, three kilometers away from the FOB. Okay. And so I put up two battle positions in the north, two battle positions to the south, mounted, and then I'd have an element at the entry point to the, uh, to the compound. And when the uh, task force commander and his staff got complete, they would escort them back and we would just clap security inside to out. The event happened like all poor timing. Our, we had two, we had a team of a scout weapons team on station to support for us of two Kiowas. And as the meeting was ending, three significant things happened um, that I later, some are connected and some are just, just the way that the timeline worked out. The radio got really jammed with reports all at, at once. The meeting was ending, and I don't think there was really a way for the enemy to know this, but it jammed up the net. People were talking on it and trying to communicate internally about how they were gonna close down the internal security. The Afghans were passing up to the interpreter and some of the other battle positions that a vehicle was moving through to the south at a high rate of speed towards our southern battle positions where I was located with uh, uh, Sergeant Mitchell and two of my other team leaders. And that distracted us. And then the third thing that came over the radio was on the fires net, talking to my forward observer, the Kiowa spotted uh, roughly anywhere reporting between 15-ish uh, military age males with uh, cruiser weapons and assault rifles and RPGs leaving a mosque about 100, 150 meters away from our location. But something that you couldn't necessarily see from the ground, but the Kiowa was flying overhead, right? They could see. see it. Just based, there were, just based on the way the terrain is, it was, it was different the way the valley, the terrain in the area worked. There was a lot of, it had a high canopy, mm -hmm. and a lot of the infrastructure was built into it. They didn't do a whole lot of deforestation in the area. So it was very difficult for them to see in, so they would get glimpses. And for us, it was equally difficult on the ground level because of the vegetation on the ground. So it worked, it worked great for them, uh, the enemy, that is. And there was a large civilian population in the area, which they could blend in with as well. So all three of these reports came at the same time. So we have an inside cordon on security that's collapsing and starting their movement back to the, back to the FOB. We have, Kai was giving us a report, and at the same time, they told us they had to uh, use the term FARP, uh, go back and refuel at Nishrab, mm -hmm. which was about a 20, it was gonna be in between uh, 20 to 45 minute uh, rotation for them to go there, land, refuel, and come back on station for us. Murphy's Law of Combat, of course they broke down. Uh, moments later after we got that reporting and they broke off station from us, that's when the full ambush from these guys, they had managed to get in pre-planned fighting positions 
and they begin focusing uh, a lot of their fire on our more on our Afghan counterparts. So they had Humvees, traditional Humvees, where we were in Max Pros and Mavvees. So they uh, they show up. How far? How far? When they start firing, how far away are they? Are, are they from you? Our estimates at that time, they had a little bit more standoff, so it put them around 125 meters away. Okay. 100 to 125 meters away. Did it seem like they were trying to maneuver from that point and get closer, or were they content to just sit there behind cover and start shooting? That's a difficult question. To In the moment, there was no way for me to know that. Uh, the great thing about a lot of the equipment that we have is Max Pros are a very resilient piece of equipment, but it pulls away a lot of your situational awareness. Mm -hmm. So for me, to answer your question, I have to open the door, take my Peltors off, and get out and, and actually see on the ground because we have limited space even from our windows. And once I was able to see that, they were static. They were not attempting to maneuver, and it wouldn't have done a lot of good because we were, we were mounted at the time. But the focus was more on my vehicle and uh, one of our ANA uh, counterparts vehicle, which was taking a large volume of fire, uh, machine gun and, and RPG fire. Uh, the situation escalated. I received a radio uh, transmission, and we knew this was, was part of what we came there to do. It was to eliminate, and we had three main missions that our task force commander came down and told us to do. Uh, reduce the indirect fire threat to the FOB, eliminate the indirect fire threat to the FOB, and clear MSR Vermont, which ran north and south. Uh, along the along the district. So when I say reduce the indirect threat, we know that we're going to be engaged in uh, a good significant amount of fighting just just to achieve that that end state. So we weren't surprised when uh, my commander at the times uh, we reported troops and contacts and up at the time we use a modified pretty common salute reports. I think everybody in mm -hmm. the audience could identify that. We modified it first and called them SALT reports, just size, activity, location, and, and the time right there. Just a quick uh, heads up to the, to the talk so they could kind of give an overall sense of what's going on. And, and then I passed up my, my, the exact locations of where my trucks were. So we pass that up and then I get a transmission. And, and mind you, both the commanders are in route back to the FOB. So we're having trouble communicating with the, with the command, but we're trained, we, we understand what to do. So we get out and uh, once I get that order from my commander, hey, get out, link up with your counterparts and assault on the enemy and, and eliminate the threat. And that's exactly what we did. I called for uh, as many dismounts as possible. So we're mounted, it makes it very difficult you need to man that truck with, with at least two pers personnel, one driver and a gunner. And we, never, and we never leave anybody alone. So we gotta leave two guys and we're manning five trucks. So almost half of my, my platoon, I have to leave in the trucks. So that's how we end up in an engagement where I have eight Americans with me, eventually including my, uh, a commander as one of them. And the other half is Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police that uh, had been uh, partnered with us uh, for that particular mission. We did a basic textbook, nothing, 
nothing particularly that would our tactics were very simple I can tell you that it was simply establish a support by fire position and then allow the assaulting element once they gain fire superiority to begin its assault up onto the objective and in that it was myself uh, Sergeant Mitchell uh, Sergeant Abinger and, and Sergeant Hansbro were ducked behind this berm putting together using rocks and pointing in a direction Sergeant Mitchell I want you to take him over about 300 or about 150 meters take two machine guns with you once you start your give me a, a rate of transmission that you're in position as soon as you begin initiating fire after X amount of time we're going to begin bounding up very classic this, and I always say this uh, when they ask what kind of tactics we're using at the time we're using the basic tactics because mm -hmm. that's what we trained on and that's what we're good at and that's exactly how it executed and the initial assault up there we took a lot of while we had initially dismounted to move there there was a large heavy volume of fire but it started to lull and I think the enemy wasn't anticipating us to react that way and as we began our assault forward, we really didn't come with a lot of resistance up to the initial objective. And we found ourselves very quickly on the, on the X or on the objective. And the enemy had quickly retrograded, but we knew that they were using the mosque to cache weapons. We found hundreds of expended PKM and, and, uh, and various types of of weapons that had been left on the on that objective and we did what everybody does once you get to the objective you establish security brought in our uh, support by fire and this is where things did not go well for us and it was I wondered if there was a whole lot more I could have done as a platoon leader to eliminate this this is how the situation escalated nothing had gone out of control for us at this point we established that security on the objective. We started going into clearing the area, and we were put, well, before we cleared the area, we were bringing in the support by fire to come in and uh, link up with us so we could eliminate any sort of fratricide. And the difficulty with never having been on the train or patrolled in there, you, it's difficult to talk them onto our locations through buildings. Yes, they had a clear sight onto the objective from where they put their support by fire, but once they went down into some of the low ground and had to come in throughout the buildings in the village, Sergeant Mitchell and his element, I'm going to use the word not disoriented to say they didn't know what they were doing, but they had a hard time navigating to us. And it became concerning for me as the platoon leader because the risk of fratricide just goes through the roof. And they end up moving more towards the, they continue more to the north when we needed them to come more back to the west mm -hmm. and they find themselves at the front edge of an open field and they're talking us on and uh, I'm telling them like Sergeant Mitchell I got no idea where you are I need you to stop moving so I can ex slowly extend my uh, security perimeter so I can absorb you into it as we're trying to accomplish this Sergeant Mitchell and his element they the enemy that had retrograded from that objective had moved across the field already and established new fighting positions or at least consolidated mm -hmm. i won't go so far as to say they were in fighting positions. they had consolidated and started to started to put some time and space away from us 
they immediately got into their own skirmish firefight. And, uh, and I always had this policy with my NCOs that I, that I trusted the actions they were going to make on the ground. And Sergeant Mitchell's decision was to close the distance on the enemy and eliminate that threat because that was, that was our objective, that was our mission. So I supported that. And he maneuvered his element across that field, bounding his machine guns, and they cornered them into a compound and they found themselves in a canal. And that allowed, at that point I was faced with, I, to me, I didn't quite have a break in contact, but there was a significant amount of terrain where I didn't have security between the two of us. And my decision at that moment was to close that gap and extend our perimeter of security. So immediately, the objective was no longer a concern for it. It was cleared. The goal at that point was merely move my element from the objective up to that point in the canal system where Sergeant Mitchell's uh, uh, team was located. Uh, once we got there and we secured that area in there, I made a quick assessment. I realized, all right, we, we're going to need a lot more guys. Uh, there were way too many more avenues of approach. It was very poor uh, visibility because of the vegetation. There wasn't good cover for us in the area. And I didn't want to pull all the way back and create too many moving pieces on the battlefield. Because you're still working at this point with essentially half a platoon? Half a platoon, okay. yes. And I have another platoon that was originally en route back to the FOB. Now we're, now we're bringing out our QRF mm -hmm. and we're bringing out, elevating the posture, the security posture at the FOB and trying to bring... Uh, our sister platoons out to the engage out, out to our location and and link them in with us so there's a lot of pieces moving around and having not been completely familiar with this area the drivers aren't fully aware you say take a left at this there, there's just yep. back to what i was saying before you got to live in the area before you feel comfortable knowing it like the back of your hand kunar that wasn't a problem here we're in a new area and when i link up with sar mitchell and he's got Three of my NCOs, the sergeants, Mitchell, Navigar, and Hansbro, and two other new new additions to our platoons, and they'd only been there a couple, a couple maybe a couple weeks, uh, Private James and Private Liggett, and fresh, fresh to the unit, <laughs> kind of similar to me in a way, where I was a new lieutenant, and they were new privates. Um, and we put them, we had a few ANA with them, and we... We established our security position there, and I took my Ford Observer, and I, and I told Sergeant Mitchell, I was like, I'm going to go back and get us some reinforcements. Give me, and I left, in the basic stuff, I left a five-point contingency plan. Uh, it was modified because we were in a time crunch, but I left that with Sergeant Mitchell, and I went back to, to one, link up with my commander and update him on what's going on because when I was talking to the Corps yesterday, that's, that's always something that you have to do. You have to be able to accurately describe what's occurring on the ground to the command team so they can help push assets to you. And I went back to link up with him, but most importantly, get more men and bring them forward so we could secure the area. At that same time, as they were going around, Sergeant Mitchell, when I say that, I mean Sergeant Mitchell and the other NCOs were establishing their security positions. That's when they got in contact from a courtyard from that enemy that had fallen back in there. They gotten in close proximity engagement with a machine gunner and in there uh, Bill Sarnabinger was critically uh, critically wounded being shot in the arm entering through his wrist and out his elbow and, and hitting uh, hitting an artery and what that caused 
was it caused Sergeant Hansborough to drag him into the compound as the machine gun fire had split that element in half, forcing the Liggett and James out to stay in the canal and forcing uh, Sergeant Mitchell, Navinger, and Hansborough into, the, into this compound. So now we have this, we have this separation mm-hmm. of, and it's very difficult to have command and control on, on, on either one of them. And this is, this is when you can do all the planning you want and all the training, but the enemy always has the final say in how that plan's gonna go. They have decisions to make too. And this worked out really well for them, whether they planned this or not, but they located that machine gun in such a place that it did split that element. Fortunately, I had received the radio, uh, uh, Sergeant Hansborough had passed me up some good reporting, I was aware of what was going on, and I was able to get to their location. And as I come in, and uh, Sergeant Mitchell and I always make a joke on, uh, it's internal, maybe some people in the audience will find this humor, others may not, but we keep a tally on who saved whose lives more. (laughs) And this is where Eric entered in the lead, it was 1-0. Because I come into the courtyard and immediately as that uh, enemy fighter with his PKM opened, I, I see in this door, I see uh, a figure emerge, which is Sergeant Mitchell with a Mark 48, which is a Navy weapon. It shoots a 7.62. And he, without going into detail, he completely and totally eliminated that threat as it began to engage me. And as much as I want to say I was situationally aware of everything, I was not aware that I was being engaged until that threat was completely eliminated. And uh, so at that point, it's, it's our Mitchell's in the lead, saved hmm. his platoon leader's life uh, in his favor. Immediately we get inside the compound and that's where we find out that the reporting is they're outnumbered uh, and at the time the assessment was, they got a hand, they were like, Sir, we think there's about seven to ten fighters in here, and they were all kind of plunging their fire down on Sergeant Hansborough, who was tucked in the corner, tourniqueting Sergeant Abinger. And we had two things: one, establish security; two, stabilize Sergeant Abinger. So we established that local um, casualty collection point, and Sergeant Mitchell, Sergeant Hansborough, and I were, in order to establish that security in there for us was to clear out um, a series of rooms inside this compound with no idea what was lying behind these doors. And that's what we systematically did. We got on, we stacked, and we cleared, and ended up engaging and killing a number of of enemy in the process, detaining others, finding a lot of weapons or IED manufacturing equipment in the area. And we we continued this. We went through it relatively quickly. We weren't interested in and really exploiting anything in the rooms, just merely create a buffer zone for Sergeant Abinger. So, and then after this is when you're finally able to start kind of collapsing in and, and, and heading back to the FOB after that? That was the plan. Uh-huh. And again, the enemy always has, 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 a, has a say in how this fight's yeah. gonna go. So we thought at this point, we, we had a couple detainees. Uh, there had been some shooting, some close quarter shooting in there. Uh, the threats had been put down. We hadn't sustained any other casualties. We kind of thought at the moment, well, myself talking with my commander, we had a, a grasp on, on this situation right here. At that moment, as I went to clear to the southern section of the compound, I noticed something behind one of the doorways. 
uh, into an alleyway. I wasn't sure, so I called over two guys. Says, Let's go and investigate what this is. And as you can there's not a whole lot of surprise to it. It was another enemy fighter who was merely scouting for us. And we reflect back on it, and we think that this was a, this was a bait uh, based on the way this whole, whole thing started to unfold. And uh, a lot of luck, more luck happened. And I've heard the saying, I'd rather be lucky than skilled. <laughs> I was happy to be lucky this day because some unfortunate things happened, but we know it could have been worse. When I found, when, when I saw that, I called over to them and we went to investigate it. And as soon as we came onto the, the corner of this alleyway, they had set up a, a secondary machine gun, uh, a PKM on top of the wall, pointing directly down on us. And when we came in, we, we just did a massive amount of fire on our position. And Sergeant Hansburn and I went to, to suppress it until we could get Sergeant Mitchell in there with his uh, Mark 48 and, and clear down the alleyway. And at that time, we began to, uh, and I don't really vividly recall how this happened, but I remember seeing a plume of smoke, ha a plume of smoke, and a vibration down the alleyway. I soon find out they were grenades. Uh, with all the gunfire and all the smoke, it was very difficult to focus on it. So. At one point, one landed in front of uh, Sergeant Mitchell, and I was fortunate enough to, to see that and instinctually uh, grabbed him, and, and, and I was on top of him. We were behind the wall. We hear the explosion. We look around. We look each other in the eye, check all our, <laughs> check all, make sure everything's still intact, and uh, just, just that, that look in the eye, everything's good, and uh, we prepped our grenades, and, and, and fortunately, Ours were more effective, and, and moments before Sergeant Mitchell goes to throw this grenade, and this, this, is a, this is a part of the story that maybe not a lot of people ever read about, he actually got attacked by a hornet's nest. <laughs> as, if, as if they were picking sides, he bumped in to a hornet's nest, and he's pulling off, he's, he has all his, the pins pulled from his grenade, and so just the spoon is remaining and there's hornets stinging his hand. So he's having to cling to this grenade as hornets are stinging him. And that's when another grenade comes over, spinning over the side of the wall, lands uh, next to, to the four of us. My, my Ford Observer, Roshan Baum, my other team leader, Jack Hansborough, myself, and, and, and uh, Sergeant Mitchell. And there was nothing we could do. It was just so far enough that none of us could do anything to it except brace. And in the end, it was a dud. And once it didn't explode, suppress a fire over onto that uh, uh, position and that, that, that former uh, that, that, uh, machine gun position. Eric throws, throws a grenade over, eliminates that. And we begin clearing, clearing down the alley. And we knew that there were, you could either go right, which there was, there was nothing to stop us from going right, and going left, there was a barricaded door. And for, I guess a gut feeling didn't want to go down this alleyway that just seemed the, the mm -hmm. path of least resistance. Instead, I tried to, we checked this uh, gate for booby traps, looked around and see anything of it, tried to push on it slowly, notice it was locked. We shoot the lock off of it, open it up. And, and looking back at the way uh, the, the terrain was, if we had gone down that area, we would have been cornered 
in direct line of sight of, of, of another subsequent ambush that they had placed. But instead we kind of came out perpendicular to it. We were closer and we got into this alleyway and we found ourselves in the middle of, of several machine guns uh, honing in on our position. We're stacked against the wall. Sergeant, Mitch, or Sergeant Mitchell's uses Mark 48. We spend a lot of ammunition at this time, so we're trying to be a little bit more conservative, but at the same time, I'm pushing them to gain fire superiority. And Sergeant Hansbros has an M320 grenade launcher, and he's pulling the rounds off of his off of his uh, rack and, and shoot them in there. And only like every three are actually exploding because they need a certain amount of time mm-hmm. to activate. And they were so close that we weren't getting a lot of them to explode, which which told us how close the proximity of the fight was. The following events had escalated very rapidly. Uh, rocket propelled grenade ended up before we could really get gain our fire superiority. The enemy used uh, a rocket propelled grenade to take out our fighting location. And that's where we found ourselves with sustaining the most amount of casualties. Myself, Sergeant Mitchell, and Sergeant Hansborough. And uh, after we kind of got accountability of everybody, that's when I noticed the absence of Sergeant Hansbrough. And when I went back into the alleyway, uh, found him under debris of rubble at the same time. I was in a, a standoff basically with uh, uh, some other enemy fighters. And fortunately, I was able to move him back, uh, engage, engage the enemy, uh, killed, a, killed those insurgents and, and moved up. And then we finally got control of the situation once I got on the rooftop and we started calling for close air support. And then we, there was enough of a lull that we moved, we were able to move uh, the wounded back to our, our evacuation point where we had uh, the first line of care. At that time, our other one had set up and they were ready to receive, re- receive the casualties at that point. Well, it's, it's an incredible story. I th- there are a couple things that kind of stick out immediately um, that I think uh, sort of lessons for for uh, for listeners, uh, particularly within the military profession, one of them is just the importance of training. You know, when when you first started taking fire, you did the simplest thing, right? You set up a support by fire element, an assault element, and you assaulted the objective. When you um, when you had a team split and you showed up there and you realized that there were fighters in these rooms, you grabbed a group of guys, you stacked the door, and you started clearing rooms, just the way that I'm sure you had trained, probably out here at Buckner sometimes. Yes. Uh, during during the summer, so. Um, well, thank you again for, for, for coming in. It is a pretty powerful story, and, and, and glad that uh, you were able to share it with the cadets here and, and, and our listeners. Absolutely. I'm appreciative of the Association of Graduates for creating this award and, and the platform to be, to be able to come and share and for putting on this podcast, which my, my hope is that it tells cadets that what you're doing here matters and the training you're receiving, you're going to use it again. in in the near future. So thank you so much for your time and and it's truly an honor to be here and, and participate in this podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Also, check out the great new articles, podcast episodes, and more that we publish every day on the MWI website. Thanks again for listening.